you, you are the greatest threat to your marriage. That's what I was told by my pastor in premarital counseling. You, not your spouse, you are the greatest threat to your marriage. My sin, pride, and selfishness stand ready to drive a wedge and tear asunder my marriage. How would you feel being told that? I know that I feel differently about that counsel today than I did nearly 14 years ago. Those words still ring in my ears as a warning and as a welcome. They are a warning to beware the danger of thinking more highly of myself than I ought. They are also a welcome, an invitation to lay aside what I perceive to be my rights and even my needs. As strange as it may seem, I cherish those words. I cherish those words uh, so much so that one of my children uh, bears the name of that beloved pastor. What if something similar was said to you? What if this time the truth was applied to your relationship with the local church? What if you were told that you are the greatest threat, you are the greatest threat to unity in your local church? Your sin, your pride, your selfishness stand ready to drive a wedge and tear asunder your local church. Did you know that someone had the gumption to say that? That, That's in large part what the warning the Apostle Paul issued to the church in Philippi. He warned them of the danger of selfish ambition, of the disease of diatrophies, of, of loving to be first. Paul also told the church in Philippi to welcome the mind of Christ, which is displayed in humble service to your fellow believer. This message from Paul is as relevant today as it was when it was written half a world away nearly 2,000 years ago. By God's grace, our our congregation is largely blessed with unity in Christ. And if it is to be maintained as a glorious witness to Jesus, each one of us must be ever aware that our pride and selfishness and sin are a threat to our congregation. Here, we do not press into worry, but into the wonder of Jesus' humility and all that he has accomplished for us and for our salvation. This is what we have the privilege of thinking about this morning from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and traveling through chapter 2, verse 11. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 980. 980. And while you're turning there, let's just remember a few important things about this letter. Paul, he is the primary author of this letter to the Philippians. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. That means he was personally, divinely, and directly commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus to go around preaching the gospel and planting churches, establishing churches. He established the church in Philippi on his second missionary journey sometime between 49 and 51 AD. And Paul penned this letter to the church sometime between 51 and 63 AD, depending on when you think Paul was imprisoned at the time of his writing. As we have uh, learned from our study in Philippians, Paul was deeply grateful for the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. As a church, they financially supported him as a missionary from the very beginning of their existence as a church. They gave Paul 
and this support gave Paul confidence that God was at work in them. And Paul prayed that God would continue to be at work in them. And in the verses leading up to our passage, Paul gave the Philippians an, an update on his personal situation. He was in prison, but the gospel was still advancing. And at verse 27, Paul turns his attention away from himself and to the Philippians. In verses 27 to 30, Paul calls the Philippians to stand together, united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then as chapter 2 opens, Paul calls for unity. His call for unity continues by giving the Philippians vices to cast off and virtues to put on. We see that in verses 1 to 4. And then in verses 5 through 8 of chapter 2, Paul provides the pattern of selfless service in the person and work of Jesus Christ, only to give us God the Father's perspective on the work of His Son in verses 9 to 11. So we'll study these four sections under four headings. The pursuit of unity, the path of unity, the pattern of humility, and the perspective of God the Father. The message of Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through chapter 2, verse 11 is this. Pursue unity through humility, for God exalts the humble. That's the message of this text in a nutshell, in a sentence. Pursue unity through humility, for God exalts the humble. Let's begin with our first point, the pursuit of unity. And as we do, follow along, please, as I read, beginning in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Well, you see there in verse 27 that Paul, he turns his attention to the Philippians. That little phrase, only let your manner of life, might also be adequately translated. As for you, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. You see, Paul, he just described how he has been living a life in a manner worthy of the gospel, preferring Jesus' glory more than life itself. And now he turns to exhort the Philippians to do the same. What would it mean for the Philippians? What would it mean for them to, to live their lives in a manner worthy of the good news of Jesus? Whatever happens, whether facing difficulty like imprisonment, or opposition like jealous preachers, or whatever it may be, let your conduct be honorable, exalting, and glorifying to God. Live as though your citizenship really is in heaven, as Paul will say a little later in this letter. You, you don't live within the ethical bounds of what is permissible in the Roman Empire. No, you live out the ethics of the kingdom proclaimed by Christ the King and His ambassadors. 
You do this whether or not I come to you, Paul says. You'll recall that Paul has said that he'd prefer to die and be with Christ, Philippians 1.21. But that he perceived he would be released and come to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 25. Now, he's saying there in verse 27, whatever happens to me, you are to persevere in a life that emulates the love and holiness of Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul characterizes this admonition of a living worthy of the gospel. Do you see there that it's corporate? He wants the Philippians to stand firm in what? To stand firm in one spirit. With what? With one mind. And how does he want them to strive together? Side by side. You see this call to pursue unity. Don't don't miss this. From Paul's vantage point... The pursuit of living a life worthy of the gospel occurs in gospel community. Living a life worthy of the gospel occurs alongside fellow believers pushing, reaching, striving for the same thing, for the faith of the gospel. True unity is found in advancing the truth about Jesus in partnership with other believers. You cannot have unity without the truth. Or as Paul puts it, the faith of the gospel. Too often we try to pursue unity apart from holding the truth close. But that is folly. The truth is what unites God's people. The truth is the the plow that we put our hands on, that we all put our hands on together and push. Unity is established around something objective and outside of ourselves. Paul wants to hear of the Philippians' unity. He wants to hear that they are pursuing unity in and around gospel work. Unity, Paul says there, you see at the beginning of verse 28, is even the antidote to fear. When other believers are alongside of us, standing up for the faith of the gospel, we are strengthened and encouraged to stand with them. This implies that we cannot abandon our calling to be a witness wherever we are. We can't run off into the desert and be monks. We're called to stay, strive, and stand firm. Now, professing believers are going to be faced with really a lot of gotcha questions in the days ahead. They're, They're already getting many of them now. Questions like, do you believe homosexuality is a sin? They're common. Those are the the kinds of questions that test whether or not we are standing firm in the Bible's teaching. And when a brother or sister in Christ gives a biblical And bold answer to that question, are we going to encourage them? Are we going to stand with them and be counted as one of those striving for the faith of the gospel? Are we going to say, yes, that is what the Bible says. That that is sin. Jesus lived, died, and was raped for the forgiveness of that sin and every other sin. Knowing that there is a strong community with us when facing those questions gives us strength to stand firm. Paul's language in verse 28, verses 28 through 30, make it clear that the Philippians are facing opposition. They've got opponents. You see that in verse 28. They are suffering. We see that in verse 29. And they are engaged in the same conflict that Paul is engaged in. Verse 30. I wonder, did that phrase in verse 28 jump out at you? Were you taken aback by Paul saying, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction? Do you understand what Paul's saying there? Paul is saying to the Philippians, your fearless unity, 
Your fearless unity around the truth is a sign of destruction to those who oppose you and therefore oppose God. This is the same thing that Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. You can flip over there if you like. It's on page 989 of the Bible's provider. You can just listen to what Paul says there. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5 Paul writes, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are, are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you was believed. You see what Paul is saying? T turning back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 28, we see the same thing there, just briefer. In Philippians 1, 28, we see that Paul saying that the Philippians' fearless unity around the truth is a sign declaring that God's opponents will be eternally ruined. In the New Testament, that term for destruction, verse 28, is often connected with everlasting punishment. Uh, we, we heard it in 2 Thessalonians just a moment ago. It's connected with everlasting punishment in hell. Our unity around the truth of the gospel now is a sign to unbelievers of God's everlasting punishment. Now, this is often a sincere and serious objection to Christianity. Those who do not call themselves followers of Jesus hate the idea of hell. They hate the idea of eternal self-conscious torment. Even some believers struggle to see the justice of God in infinitely punishing the sins committed by a finite person. Now, two things, at least two things, must be borne in mind. First, when we sin against God, we sin against the one who is infinite and eternal. And therefore, the only appropriate and just response is that of an infinite and eternal punishment. Second, Sinners don't stop sinning in hell. They go on sinning. They will never stop hating God. And since they go on sinning, their punishment keeps going on without end. The Philippians' fearless unity around the truth is not merely a sign declaring that God's opponents will be eternally ruined, but it is also a sign that God's people will be saved. Our unity in standing firm in Christ is evidence, it is proof that we are in Christ and will be saved on the last day. Our salvation is from God and our clinging to Christ together is proof that we have been saved by God. So Christian, if you are not a member of a local church, it's time to pursue unity with fellow believers. Join with God's people and declare to the world the truth about Jesus that he came not just to save one person, but a people committed together to boldly declaring his name with one voice. Consider what Paul says there in verse 29. You see there, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul is telling the Philippian church, you've not only been called to faith, 
But you've been called to suffer. Paul is openly saying that God has ordained this suffering. It is from God's hand. Don't despise it. Recognize it for what it is. A gift. This suffering, Paul is saying, is a gift to identify with Jesus in his sufferings and to exhibit solidarity, to exhibit unity with other believers who are suffering. That's the force of verse 30 there. It's Paul saying, hey, I'm suffering with you. Let's glorify Christ in our suffering. This truth is is so important when we suffer. We have to remember that Jesus suffered for us and for our salvation. And we have to remember that other believers suffer too. One of Satan's ploys, one of his tricks in the midst of our suffering is to isolate us and, and make us think that nobody understands. The truth is, is that Jesus knows our sorrows. And so do other brothers and sisters in Christ. Even in our suffering, we have unity. So, we are to pursue unity in Christ. We're to strive together for the faith of the gospel. So that the world will know its truth. And so that we will be certain of our salvation. But how are we to pursue this unity? What is the character, the the attitude, or the the mindset in which we are to pursue this unity? What is the, the path to unity? That's what Paul addresses next in our second point. The path of unity. Follow along as I read Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do Nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The path of unity, I trust you see, is is fairly easy to see in this text. It's much harder to see manifested in our lives. The path of unity is simply the path of humility. Paul begins with a string of of any statements. They they catch our attention given the rhythm of of the text. But what we need to see is they're they're actually lodged within an if-then construction. Right? The the if is clear right there at the beginning of verse 1. So if. But then the the then is actually implied at the beginning of verse 2. Paul is saying, if this is the case, then this is what you should do. Uh, If there's any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy. What's Paul saying here with this string of statements? On the surface, it seems as though Paul is saying, if if you have any of these in your your life, if you have any measure of them, then pursue unity through the, the exercise of humility. If you show any evidence of being a Christian at all, pursue unity. If you have any measure of faith in Jesus, that's the idea actually behind encouragement. If you have any measure of faith in Jesus, then be humble. If you have any comfort, any assurance of God's love, then be humble. If you have the down payment of the Holy Spirit in your life, then be humble. If you have any affection for your brothers or sisters in Christ, then then be humble and serve them. And the way that Paul has set up this series of any statements, uh, it's clear that, that he believes that the Philippians 
are marked by these things. Paul's not questioning whether or not the Philippians have these things, these encouragement in Christ, comfort from God's love, and so on. He assumes that they have all of them. He has already said that God has begun a good work in them. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. This is what all believers have. So brothers and sisters, you have these in Christ, which means that you can and must obey Paul's command. This command of God, actually. If the Philippians have these things, then what? Well, then they are to make Paul's joy complete. That's actually the main command in these verses. Paul's saying, make my joy complete. That's the main command. Paul is placing the Philippians under obligation of making his joy complete. Is that okay for Paul to do? Uh, can, Can Paul command this of the Philippians? Well, he can because he's an apostle. He is the Lord Jesus' divinely appointed ambassador. But there's another reason that Paul can command, can issue this command. Paul can issue this command because what he is asking is right and righteous. You see, what would make Paul happy? It would make God happy. We'll see that when we come to verses 9 to 11. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. How are the Philippians to complete Paul's joy? They're to have the same mind and love and be in full accord. Uh, the expressions here communicate the idea that the Philippians are to be one-souled, to be one-minded. How can they do that? How can a group of wildly different people from different backgrounds with different interests, with different politics and tastes and hobbies and personality traits be so united in the way that Paul desires? The path to unity is humility. It is self-denial, self-sacrifice. It is service and exaltation of others. What threatens unity is the very opposite of those things, right? Self-assertion, self-service, self-absorption, and self-exaltation. In a word, pride. We, We don't want to admit it, but in our flesh, this is what we're prone to, right? We, we look out for number one. Uh, we live in a culture that loves rights and even exalts those who refuse to, to give them up. Now, sometimes it's not wrong to maintain your rights, but within the life of the local church, clinging to your perceived rights can be haughty and harmful to the unity of the church and therefore the good news of Jesus Christ. We can be the great threat to the unity of our church. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer offered seven principles for rooting out selfish ambition from churches that are worthy, I think, of our consideration. He said that Christians should, one, hold their tongues, refusing to speak uncharitably about a Christian brother. Two, cultivate the humility that comes from understanding that they, like Paul, are the greatest of sinners and can only live in God's sight by His grace. Do we take up that phrase from Paul, we are the chief of sinners? Three, listen long and patiently so that other brothers and sisters will understand their fellow Christians' need. Four, refuse to consider their time and calling so valuable that they cannot be interrupted to help with unexpected needs, no matter how small or menial. Uh, Five, bear the burden of their brothers and sisters in the Lord, both by preserving their freedom and by forgiving their sinful abuse of that freedom. Six, declare God's word to their fellow believer when they need to hear it. Seven, 
Understand that Christian authority is characterized by service and does not call attention to the purpose the, to the person who performs that service. In verses 3 and 4, Paul forbids believers from doing anything from selfish motives. Anything. He forbids believers from being self-absorbed and self-centered. He calls for an orientation toward the exaltation of others, their interests, their needs. If this is to be done, then it has to be intentional, doesn't it? We, we naturally think of ourselves and our needs first, but Paul, he is, he's pushing for believers in Philippi to think of others first. If we could put it in the words of Jesus, Paul is saying, your attitude must be your will, not mine, be done. Paul's asking for believers to do a mindset check when they, they walk through the doors of a church gathering. When you, when you walk into a church gathering, the mindset check is this. Who can I serve? Who, who can I encourage? Who, who can I build up? When you think about it, this teaching is really not all that different from Jesus' teaching in Mark chapter 10, verse 43, when he said, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And only a verse later, or two verses later, he would say, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We, we cannot enter into the service of others unless we think of them first. And Paul is saying to the Philippians, get under your brother. Get under his need. Put yourself below him. Put your desires below his. Lift him up. This is what we need to recognize about what Paul communicates really in the third portion of our text. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, Paul reminds the Philippians that the pattern of humility is found in the whole work of Jesus Christ. In these verses, Paul reaches back before the foundation of the world. He, he reaches back before the incarnation of the eternal Son of God and he traces his humble work to the cross. In these verses and the ones that follow, verses 9 to 11, Paul sketches some of the deepest theology and Christology that we have in the New Testament. And as one, one pastor said, this speaks to the depth of the problem of selfishness in our hearts, doesn't it? Why else would Paul have to go down so deep into the doctrine of Christ if we weren't so selfish and self-absorbed? As we turn to consider our third point, the pattern of humility, keep in mind the trajectory of Paul's message. He has called the Philippians to unity. He has told them the path to unity is humility. And now he provides the ultimate example of humility, Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, do you want to know what kind of humility you should display? Consider Jesus. Please follow along as I read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In verse 5, Paul once again turns to the mind. He's calling for a particular mindset. 
It is not only a mindset that believers have by virtue of their faith union with Christ, but it is also the very mindset that Jesus had. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, lowered Himself to lift up sinners. How did the eternal Son of God do that? While being fully God, He became fully man. The key word for this idea is form. It's found there in verses four, sorry, verse 6 and verse 8. Jesus was in the form of God, verse 6, and through His incarnation, He came to be found in human form, verse 8. Just as much as He was and is truly man and, and always was and is and remains, He is truly God. That word form is not meant to make us believe that He only appeared to be God, or only appeared to be man. No, that word is actually meant to reinforce that he truly was God and truly became man. This much is clear by the very fact that the the next phrase tells us he wouldn't cling, he wouldn't cling to equality with God. Here we're being introduced to the, the intricacies of the two natures of the one person of Christ. Uh, In explaining these doctrinal truths, the the old catechisms used to ask, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? And they would answer by saying, Christ, the Son of God, became man. By taking to himself a reasonable body, uh, by taking to himself a, a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. What we're given here in verse 6 is a description of the eternal divine Son previous to His taking flesh to His person. But when the eternal Son of God took flesh to His person and was willingly placed in the womb of the Virgin Mary, that was the moment of the incarnation. That's what we mean by incarnation. The enfleshment of the eternally divine Son, the second person of the Godhead. The incarnation was the act whereby the eternal Son of God took human flesh to His divine person. The eternal Son of God existed in heaven. He enjoyed the the praises of angels. He enjoyed the glorious place where sin can never enter in. He shared the same essence as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He was in the form of God. That is how He existed. And yet the eternal Son did not hold on to that existence as though He was entitled to it, even though He was. That was not the disposition of mind that the eternal son took. Instead, he took another disposition of mind. He gave up his right to that high place. And he took a lower place. He emptied himself. Or as another translation puts it, he made himself nothing. This doesn't mean that he stopped being God or emptied himself of his deity. Because time and time again, the New Testament affirms his deity. No, it means that he became a servant. He gave up his rights to the throne to become a servant, a person who has no account in the eyes of society. That word servant there in verse 7 in the original language is aiming at the idea of being a slave. When we think of people who are enslaved, we think of people who have no rights or privileges, don't we? Jesus, he entered into the service of others. Jesus lived this, didn't he? Just think of when he washed the disciples' dirty and grimy feet in John 13. That was the work of a first century slave. Jesus got under them. He lifted their feet up and made them clean. And that was but a profound example of what he was really doing for them. What Jesus was really doing for them and for us 
Paul summarizes there in a single word in verse 8. Jesus was obedient. And look at the nature and length of Jesus' obedience. He was obedient to the point of death. You see how that encapsulates a period of time? Jesus came to do his Father's will. He said in John chapter 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. He was obedient to the point of death, which means from the moment of his incarnation through his death, he was obedient. Theologians have sometimes called this the active and passive obedience of Christ. Jesus' active obedience was his obedience throughout the whole of his life. And his passive obedience was his obedience in undergoing God's wrath on the cross in the place of sinners. Together, Jesus' active obedience and his passive obedience can be described as the whole obedience of Christ. Jesus obeyed God the Father. He obeyed all of God's law and all of his commands. But too often, too often, we forget that Jesus did not obey in the serenity of a garden. In doing so, we fail to remember the strenuous nature, the difficulty of Jesus' obedience. Jesus was obedient through hunger and the hounding of demons. He was obedient through being sinned against and sought by relentless crowds. He was obedient through being insulted by the religious leaders and indicted on trumped-up charges by civil leaders. Jesus was obedient through the tears of grief and the trouble of an overwhelmed soul. Jesus was obedient through all of that and more. He was obedient to the point of death. And then there was the suffering of death itself. Jesus' humiliation not only consisted of his being born and that in a low condition and undergoing the miseries of this life until finally he obeyed through the wrath of God and his cursed death on the cross. He suffered the cross, that most wretched, brutal, inhumane instrument of torture. Why? Jesus humbled himself and was humiliated to get under us. To get under our problem of sin. To get under our punishment. The punishment is due to our sin. So that he might lift us up and out from underneath it. Brothers and sisters, how can we be so proud and so arrogant and so selfish as to refuse to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ when Jesus has so served us? Jesus is our pattern for humility. And our passage, it also gives us God the Father's perspective on the whole of Jesus' work. This is our fourth and final point, the perspective of God the Father. What is God the Father's response to the humble work of His Son? And since Jesus is Paul's example of how the church in Philippi ought to pursue unity through humility, the question that we may well ask is this. What is God's perspective on our pursuit of humility in imitation of his son? Keep that question in the back of your mind as we read Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth 
and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Dear congregation, when you see that word therefore, in the scriptures, what, what, what are we supposed to do? When you see that word therefore, in the scriptures, you stop and ask, what is the therefore? Therefore. And this is what we need to do now. Very often in Paul's letters, he will use therefore in this way. He will lay out an indicative, something that's true about God or Jesus or, or ourselves in union with Christ. And then he'll plant the word therefore in the text and so lay out an imperative, something that should be done. Uh, in view of this truth, therefore live in this way. An indicative leading to an imperative is the most common way that Paul uses the word therefore. But that's not how Paul uses the word therefore in verse 9, is it? Now, that's how Paul uses it in verse 12 of chapter 2, but that's not how he uses it in verse 9. Paul uses the word therefore in an altogether surprising way. He uses therefore as a lens through which we may see God the Father's perspective on the work of God the Son. God the Father is moved by the work of His Son. And, and every earthly father knows what it's like to be moved by their children. Right? When we, we hear them read, when we watch them swim or, or play basketball or soccer, or see them voluntarily give up their rights for their siblings or serve those in need, we're, we're proud of our children. We, we delight in them. We, we rejoice in them. We encourage them. We even reward them. And this is what the father did in response to the work of his son. He rewarded him. It's even what he promised to do. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, he said, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. You see, because Jesus acted wisely, because he was so obedient, because he so humiliated himself for the sake of fallen mankind, because he stooped to help those who could not help themselves, because he served by offering himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, God the Father was moved to exalt him, to raise him up from the grave on the third day. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 4. God the Father exalted him by giving him the seat at his right hand. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. God the Father exalted him by giving him the authority to judge the world on the last day. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. But as we also see here, God the Father exalted him by bestowing upon him the name that is above every name. And what is that name? What name is above every name? That name is Lord, Kyrios. In the Greek Old Testament, commonly known as the Septuagint, that's how Yahweh was translated. At nearly everywhere Yahweh was present in the Hebrew text, we find the Lord Kyrios in the Septuagint. So what Paul is saying with his Greek is that in the exaltation of the God-man, Christ Jesus, he is vindicated and declared to be Yahweh, the Lord, the Kyrios of the universe. Christ's exaltation from the grave is a public pronouncement of his sovereign right to rule and receive worship. Notice that one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's Kyrios. Here Paul is taking up the text of the prophet Isaiah, the text that we read earlier. 
He's taking up the words that Yahweh spoke concerning himself and saying, these words, they apply to Jesus. So in Isaiah 45, verse 23, Yahweh declares this, To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. If there ever was a a declaration that Jesus is God, here it is in Philippians chapter 2, verse 11. The subjection to Jesus, knees bowing, and admission of Jesus' lordship, tongues confessing, will be universal. What did Paul say in verse 10? He said, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. The redeemed and the reprobate will all one day bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. If they will not bow in praise, then they will be made to bow in punishment. Because Jesus really is Lord. And the rightful recognition of his rule will not be refused. On that day, on the day of Jesus' return, you will bow. Everyone here will bow. But why will you bow? Will you bow in praise because Jesus is the one who saved you from your sins? Or will you bow in punishment because you refused him? Will you bow in punishment because Jesus has come to eternally slay you for your rejection of him? Friends, I plead with you. I plead with you to repent and believe in Jesus Can you not see that what God's word says is true? We have all sinned against God. The God who made us in his image, who made us in love. He he knew that we could not save ourselves. So God took on flesh and humbled himself. Jesus was obedient to the point of death. Yes, even death on a rugged and ruthless cross. Jesus was born in a manger So that he might hang on a tree and suffer agony for the sins of you and me. His dead body was sealed in a stone cold tomb. But, but three days after his death, God the Father raised him from the dead. In in the words of one Christmas carol, Glorious now, behold him arise, King and God and sacrifice. Friend, repent and believe in this good news. Believe that Jesus came down from heaven to lift you up and out of hell. Believe that Jesus came to seek and serve and save the lost. Believe that Jesus has done all of this for you. Take the very same perspective that God the Father took and exalt Jesus in your heart and life today. Praise Him today and every day. And so escape His punishment on the last day. He is Lord, so receive Him as Lord. This, if you can believe it, is actually the message of Christmas. J.A. Packer wrote in his classic work, Knowing God. The Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity. Hope of pardon. Hope of peace with God. Hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus became poor 
and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. It is the most wonderful message that the world has ever heard or will hear. Amen? As we conclude, we we need to circle back and remember that Paul has employed the work of Jesus as an illustration, an example of how the church in Philippi is to pursue unity through humility. Still, even as we do this, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. These verses carry with them an implicit promise to the church in Philippi. The promise is this. Those who live out the grace given to them in Christ will be exalted with Him. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. That's not to say that our obedience wins us an exaltation or salvation, for that was already won by Christ. Still, it is to say that all those who are savingly united to Christ will give evidence in their lives now that they will be exalted with Christ on the last day. Jesus himself promised in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, and in Luke chapter 14, verse 11, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Our selfishness and self-exaltation is a potential threat to the unity of our church and therefore our witness to the unity of the triune Godhead and the glory of Jesus Christ. Humility is the path to unity. The Lord Jesus is our pattern. God's pleasure, His delight is our goal. And exaltation with Jesus is our eternal destiny. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.